0: We're going to read today chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, That I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Well, today uh, we continue. We're continuing on in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And probably because I'm a little bit loath to finish uh, with Ephesians, I I want to to divvy up this passage. Uh, Today I want to give a, a prefatory. Uh, reflection on this idea of the armor of God and why it is that we need it and then subsequent to our Easter season I'm going to return to this passage on the armor of God and begin in a more measured fashion to describe what it means to wear God's armor as a matter of Christian discipline because it's come to my attention uh, and not surprisingly so that this is an area in which many people struggle. And uh, I want to offer some assistance by way of teaching. How do we wear God's armor in this life? For wear it, we must. And this is a very important thing. So let's, um, let's pray together and ask for God's blessing today as we consider why it is that we need to wear God's armor. Father, we thank you today for your word. And it is a powerful word. Father, today we want to hear your voice we want, O oh God, to hear and to sense and to experience the authority of Scripture coming to us, O oh Lord. So grant us ears to hear and grant us eyes to see and cleanse us and sanctify us and hem us in, O oh God, by the mountains of your word so that it might master us and that your word might define us and shape us and make us, I pray. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the demonstration of uh, may the, the meditation of all of my, our, our thoughts today, may they be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, I think it's true to say, by and large, that we live in a very material way in this world. Our time, at least the bulk of it, is preoccupied with mundane things. Yesterday morning, I had to make a trip to the dump. Uh, I had to get rid of some garbage, and I had to do some recycling at the dump. And what a mundane thing the dump is. You know, it's not a very spiritual experience to go to the dump. (laughs) I didn't have any visions there, rightly or wrongly. I didn't get stirred up by anything profound. It was just the dump. And I went about my business in a kind of dumpy way. And life predominantly is filled with these humdrum and prosaic things changing the oil in your car, going to work to put food on your table, raking your lawn, cleaning your house, writing your essay, marking your essays. All of these things, they just fill our days and scripture witnesses to these realities. That's what life is about. We saw last week in Nathan's sermon that the Bible acknowledges our role in this commonplace system of labor and vocation. Just like everyone else on the planet, we're caught up in the grinding wheels of the prosaic, the earthly routine. But if that's true, Scripture also speaks of other things. And there are moments especially when a much larger view of things is opened up to us. The Word of God, as it were, it pulls back the curtain and it gives us a glimpse of larger realities than our customary terrestrial experience affords. Elisha's servant, you'll remember, is limited by what he can see. He sees a great army around him, and he's panic-stricken. He sees only the material things around him until his master, Elisha, prays, O Lord, open his eyes so that he can see, and in a moment Supernaturally, that veil is parted and the servant perceives that the mountains are blazing. They're on fire with chariots and horses and they're teeming with innumerable angelic hosts that surrounds his master. And I think in some way at the close of this letter to the churches at Ephesus, it's as if Paul, knowing our limitations, it's as if Paul says to the Lord, oh Lord, open their eyes so that they can see. And Paul, under God's authority, he pulls back the curtain and he gives us the bigger picture and he reveals to us the momentous battle that is always, always raging against us, waged by a spiritual wickedness that is so mighty, albeit creaturely, that none of us on our own can remotely compare to its strength. You know, I've been reading uh, to my boys, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's Silmarillion. We'd finished The Lord of the Rings, and I rather uh, foolishly expected that they could follow along in these, in these uh, older and much more difficult tales, uh, mythic tales. They're following along well enough, but what I've noticed as i have rereading uh, Tolkien's Silmarillion is this Uh, Very important idea of the foolhardiness of the elves. We're all kind of being infected with the elf of of, um, Legolas in Jackson's uh, series. So when I say elves, I know that your minds aren't quite uh, as pure as they could be because of Jackson. But the the elves in uh, Tolkien's myth thought that they could overcome the enemy on their own strength. They thought that they could overcome Morgoth in their own power. And when Morgoth emerges from the strength of his fortress in Angband, and as the elves stand before the greatest of the Valar, they quail and they realize, how could we have thought that we could fight him on our own strength? No creature can compare. Luther, when he wrote his own hymn on this matter, he states simply this, he says, Satan's craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. And so in chapter six, verse 10 of our passage today, Paul says that we are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We are to put on the whole armor of God. Why? Because our seeming mundane life, our seeming prosaic existence, the paperwork, the plumbing, the holidays by the sea, all of it, Paul says, is a battle against the devil who even now, even now is trying to wrest us from God. And he's warring against our souls, our salvation notwithstanding. He wants to diminish us. He wants to rob us of our joy in God. He wants to thwart. He wants to stunt. He wants to poison. He wants to infect. He wants to reduce. The enemy is so strong, says Paul. He is so unequaled in the realm of the creature that unless you possess God's strength and unless you possess God's armor, you will not be able to stand. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Flesh and blood is what we see in our day-to-day time, but it's not what we wrestle against. It's not where the fight lies, he says. Paul holds back the curtain. He pulls it back and he says, church, look. Look at what the real issue is in your life. Don't be ignorant, church. Don't be deceived. Paul says, look at what's there. There are rulers, he says. There are authorities. There are cosmic powers that preside over this world, a world that Paul can only define as this present darkness. There are spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. They are above us, Paul says. They surround us, Paul says. They are too mighty for us. Paul says. You see, Paul's intention here is to describe these spiritually wicked powers in a way that we will not be tempted to think of them as some meager and insignificant band of orcs from the hills who come occasionally to raid our fortified camp. No, he says, it's quite the opposite. As Calvin says, Paul describes these spiritual beings as the kings of the age, they are the rulers. Paul says, they are the authorities over the currents, and the fashions, and the trends of this godless age. They are everywhere, and they are in everything, and they are too mighty for us. And so we are told time and again in scripture to be alert and to be aware. 2 Corinthians 2, we're told not to be ignorant of Satan's devices and schemes. 1 Peter 5, we're told to be sober because the devil, our adversary, he's walking about and he's seeking those whom he can devour. And Peter doesn't say be sober because the enemy is walking about trying to devour unbelievers. No, he says the devil wants to devour you. And so be sober. 2 Timothy 2, Paul, he addresses the church and he writes that there are those in the church who have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. And scripture moves us to be aware. It moves us to be alert. It moves us to be alarmed. And the devil would like nothing more, my brothers and sisters, than to lull us into a sleepy drowsiness and a practical incredulity towards the devil's person. That is to say that the way we live Our day-to-day lives is not governed in the least by a healthy concern for what the devil can do and what the devil can inflict upon you. Richard Gilpin was a Puritan minister and he was the parish priest at Greystoke in Cumberland. His own contemporaries thought that Gilpin was the finest and the most important preacher in the north of England in the the 17th century. And Gilpin wrote a treatise on spiritual conflict, which he called Daimonologia Sacra, a treatise on Satan's temptations, a thick, thick book. And as Gilpin opens up his reader about his purpose in writing this treatise, he says this. He says, the heart of man, it's the spot where God and Satan draw up their many armies. Both sides lay claim to that little spot of earth, and the whole of a man's life consists of heavy battles and cunning stratagems and constant skirmishes, all unseen, all behind the veil. The heart is attacked on one side and defended on the other. Both sides exert and they manifest their power power. And that person, he says, that person who will not concern himself with how the matter goes in his own heart, and with what ground he has gained or lost, what forts have been taken or defended, what weapons have been launched or ambushes laid, or how in general the battle proceeds, that oblivious person must necessarily lie under a just imputation of the greatest folly. Would you be a fool? Then don't think about the devil. (laughs) For this, Gilpin says, is the great reality of life. It is the ongoing fight for the soul of a man and for the soul of a woman and for the soul of a child. You know, I find it ironic that in this age of the Marvel Universe, or the Marvel Universes, I should say, you know, we're so captivated as a culture by these godlike heroes, and these quests, and these epic battles, and terrifyingly wicked and powerful beings, and yet we fail to comprehend that their fiction points to our reality. This is our reality. All just behind the veil, a universe inhabited by terrifyingly wicked beings (laughs) whom we can't possibly compare to. Colossal battles and the fate of many hanging in the balance. All just behind the veil. Every day, every moment. (laughs) And don't get me wrong, there's a mistake and a great mistake with being carnally fascinated about all of this, you know, going full peretti on uh, on this matter, being so involved about demons and spiritual warfare that we lose the gospel and Christ in our demonology. But there's also, on the other side, the grave mistake of being altogether too Western about this, going and thinking too cleverly about these things, being just too sophisticated about these things. The devil is no fiction. His demonic agents, as we read today in the story of Legion, it's no fiction. They are as real today as they were in the life of that man. And though Satan's defeat at the cross was final, he was disarmed, Paul says. He was disarmed, he says in Colossians 2. His claim to our life was absolutely broken and defeated, even so... We read in Romans 16, 20, Satan is not yet crushed under our feet. (laughs) And so we pray in our litany that God may do so. Your fight, says Paul, it's against the devil. And the devil is mighty. And unless you are adequately prepared, you will not be able to stand. This is the point of the passage. Unless you are prepared for what you're going to face, you cannot stand, Paul says. Without the armor of God, he is too strong for you. You will crumple. You will fall. You will compromise again and again. And the frightening thing about this is that if you're not wearing the armor, you will compromise without even knowing it. And you'll become the devil's plaything without the armor of God. But with the armor, Paul says, in the strength of God and in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says the devil cannot touch you. There's nothing that he can do. You will stand firm against him and against all of his fiery darts. You will be able to withstand them all. And so what this armor is and how we put it on, I intend to take up shortly after Easter. But today, my brothers and sisters, Paul has pulled back the curtain for you. Paul has pulled back the veil and he says, this is what life is really like. Do not forget the picture today. Do not forget what the apostle has showed you. What the real matters of life are, do not forget. And let the bigger picture shape and determine your minutes. Let what's behind the veil that Paul has shown you determine your hours and your days and affect how you live your life. And then God's grace will be more than sufficient for everything, everything that the devil sins against us, but only if we wear the armor of God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.